fits with the message today, and I don't know if any thought of that occurred to the people that put that together at the last minute, but obviously that wasn't Mr. and Mrs. Connors. It wasn't even Mrs. Connors. Thank you, Ms. Krebs. In John, the 13th chapter, I would like to ask you to follow me there, John chapter 13. John, the 13th chapter, and let me direct your attention to verse number 21. I'd like to begin my reading there, and we'll read down through verse 27. John 13, 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop, or a morsel, when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Our Father, we pause this morning before this aspect of the service, when in a special sense we look to thee and we wait on thee. We pause to ask thy blessing. We ask thee, our Father, in the sense in which it would be true spiritually that we might take the shoes from off our feet, recognizing that the ground upon which we stand is holy ground. We thank thee that as we enter into thy presence, we have the assurance that through the precious blood of Christ, our sins are forgiven and we appear clothed in his precious righteousness. We thank thee for this our standing, for this our confidence, for this our assurance. And yet we're mindful, our Father, that it is an imputed righteousness. It is not our own because all that we have is filthy rags. And we pray for thy cleansing and we pray for thy blessing upon our lives. We pray for the, an openness of heart and mind and attitude and ears and eyes this morning as we look into the word of God. I thank thee, Father, for the privilege and opportunity that you've given to me this morning to open the sacred book. I pray, Father, that you'd loose my tongue, that you'd free uh, any, uh, free me from any impediment and hindrance that would stand in the way of the blessing that you would minister through me today. May I be a vessel sanctified and fit for the master's use and use me, I pray today. Lend thy blessing to thy word. We know it is thy word that thou hast promised will not return unto thee void, but will accomplish the purpose whereto thou hast sent it, and that thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Magnify it in our hearts and lives today, I pray, and may we see no man save Jesus only. And this is our prayer in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. I continue this morning with my series on the Twelve Apostles, and we come this morning to the Apostle John. The Apostle John, at least insofar as our consideration, is the fourth that we have looked at. And this makes the completion of that first division of the twelve into three groups of four. This morning, John would make the completion of that. Of course, John also being one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, their raft of material in Scripture about the Apostle John. And you might say to yourself, Preacher, how are you going to do this this morning? It's sort of like Peter. There's so much that you could draw upon and so many different directions you could take. 
And yet, beloved, I put before you this morning that there is a distinctive feature of this man, this man John, about whom we could say so much and about whom the scripture contains so much material that we could literally do a series on his life, yet there is a distinctive feature, there is a facet unique to John that we can seize upon this morning, confining ourselves just to one message and be challenged by it and be blessed by it. I tell you, as I have thought about this message, I have looked forward to preparing it. I have enjoyed the studying of it. And I look forward to the preaching of it this morning, even though I think I've probably only scratched a fraction of what's really here. Here is that thing I want you to see with me this morning. John is the only of the apostles to have a very unique name given to himself in Scripture. He appears five times in the gospel which he wrote, not by his given name, because he never refers to himself as the Apostle John. His reference to himself is always oblique. He either refers to himself as a disciple, another disciple, or five times that distinctive name is given to him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now you just stop and think about that this morning, and I think you'll understand before we ever get into this message this morning, this is too heavy for us. The disciple whom Jesus loved. What do you think that means, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Do you think it means that for some reason he didn't love other people? Well, obviously not. It certainly is not meant in an exclusive sense. Beloved, it is a great joy this morning. It is a great truth that fills the soul to know that God loves all men. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't you joy this morning in knowing that Jesus loved you? Don't you joy this morning in knowing that on the cross he died for you and did it personally in order that you might have forgiveness of sins by trusting in him and in his shed blood? So certainly this is not used in an exclusive sense. But I do believe that it is used in the sense of an acknowledgement. A man turns to his wife or a wife turns to her husband and they whisper in each other's ear, Honey, I love you. Well, they love other people, but when they do that, they are acknowledging something. They are acknowledging a special love, a special relationship that exists. And when the scripture refers to the fact that John is the apostle whom Jesus loved, it is acknowledging a unique relationship, a fondness, an affection, a closeness, a dearness, and a nearness that characterized the relationship between Jesus and this man John. We have a good analogy. If you want to turn back maybe just a page and look in chapter 11, there's an interesting verse of Scripture that will help us better understand what I'm trying to say. There was a family that lived in the little town of Bethany just over the rise from Jerusalem, and often Jesus was there. He was there for fellowship. He had a special relationship with that family. And we're told in verse number 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Does that mean that Jesus didn't love other people? Does it mean that Jesus didn't love other families? Does it mean that there weren't other people that were special to him because of things and services they'd rendered? No, but it acknowledges a special place in his heart. I tell you this is too heavy for us this morning because we are talking all at once about the Son of God himself who loves with a perfect love, and yet in acknowledgement of that we approach it also understanding his human side and we seek to fathom something of what is here in this expression John uses to describe himself, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Certainly, beloved, it betokens a relationship, a relationship that I think should challenge us this morning. And what I want to do in the message is point you to each of these references. We'll make about four observations, things that I believe we see naturally flowing out of the relationship that John and Jesus enjoyed, things that flow out of a relationship such as this with the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be a challenge to our hearts to draw near, to draw nearer to him ourselves. The first observation comes from the scripture text that we've already read. And I would phrase it for you this way this morning. Speaking of John, he was close enough to ask. He was close enough to ask. Here they are. It's the Last Supper. As I've studied this passage of scripture and other passages of scripture that refer to the customs of how they ate in that day, I must confess to you that I've never quite warmed up to it. They didn't do like we do today, sitting around a table. They reclined, and they used couches. If you think for a moment about a a rectangle and think about it, or a square, and think about it being open on one end so that a servant or someone who was caring for the provision of the meal could enter from that open end, now you have something roughly equivalent to a horseshoe. And around the three sides, then, of this open square or rectangle, you would have these couches lined up. They would recline there using those couches with their faces or the front part of their body faced in towards the table. To me, it sounds awfully uncomfortable. I'd much prefer to sit in a nice strong chair at a table and eat that way, but I'm not in that context, but it's important for us to understand how it worked. And being as how most folks are right-handed, and you know I'm not putting down left-handed people. You do know that don't you this morning? I mean, I'm fully in support of the Americans with Disability Act. (laughs) But being as how most people are right-handed, they would recline using for support their left arm and their left hand. Now here's what happens. In that posture around that table, and Jesus being at that end of it that's closed, where the position of honor would be, and then the position of honor for the, the guests being next to him on one side and next to him on the other side. But the Lord tells them something, and he tells them something that arrests their attention. He says it loud enough, apparently, that everyone can hear it. He says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is a traitor. Now, you talk about something that would just sort of stop you cold in your tracks. And Peter, Peter is such an interesting and fascinating character in Scripture. Peter is not apparently near the Lord. He is several people perhaps removed wherever he was reclining. This we cannot be sure, but he was not adjoining our Lord. He hears this and his ears prick up. He wants to know who it is. Now, is this not the man who when they came to take Jesus, pulled a what? A sword. One could just wonder, did his blood pressure rise? Did his ire go up when he heard that one of them would have the audacity and the gall to betray their master? I don't know. I don't quite know what his emotions were, but his ears went up. But he was not in a position of intimacy. He was not in a position of nearness, of proximity to the Lord to ask that question in a private way. But John was. And John, apparently then, from what I've described, being situated on our Lord's right, Picture now, Jesus is reclining and like this so that the person on this side of him, which would be to his right, would be in a position simply to lean back like this since he was reclining. His head would then be in the bosom, as it says here in our scripture text, 
of the master in such a way that he would have little else to do except to just incline up and whisper in his ear the question that we find recorded in this passage, Lord, who is it? And Jesus, able to answer him in also a private and a quiet way, said this, the one to whom I give the sop. Now, beloved, this is really not my message, but when you think about the fact that Jesus, or that John, rather, is the apostle whom Jesus loved, and we refer to him as the beloved disciple, and we think about him as the apostle of love, we think about all that John had to say about love in his writings, the love of God. It means so much to understand that what Jesus did on this occasion was to give to that man whom he knew was his betrayer, the sop. That word doesn't quite do it for me. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of like an old grungy sponge that you've just used to clean the bathtub with and you're ready to pitch it. So I need to tell you that what this is really referring to is a choicest morsel. And it was reserved for a person of honor and a person of favor. This man, who was the apostle whom Jesus loved, had an opportunity to see love in action. I mean real love. When you understand that the Savior, knowing that this man would shortly be entered into by Satan and was a traitor and would ultimately go to his own place, he was no Christian. This man who had accompanied with them and heard the sermons and worked miracles, and yet he would betray his Lord, and yet he gave him that indication of his favor, almost as if he reached out one last time and said to him, Judas, I love you. Don't you want to rethink what's in your heart to do? And I can't help but wonder down through the years, as this man of God, the Apostle John, this disciple whom Jesus loved, given the opportunity to live perhaps into his 90s, how many times do you think he reflected back on what he saw his master do that night and understood what it was on the part of God to love sinners? Beloved, don't you know that if Jesus Christ can demonstrate his love as he did that night for a man like Judas, don't you know he loves you today? Don't you know you haven't done one single thing that he can't forgive you? Don't you know that regardless of what your past and regardless of what the black spots may be, he loves you and he can take your sins away and he can forgive them and he can make you his child. And has he perhaps brought you to this service this morning in order that he might reach out to you through this frail preacher and say, I love you with an everlasting love. If you would simply give me your heart, I would come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will open the door and will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. But you see, John, being in that position of intimacy and nearness and closeness, is there not a spiritual application of what is true physically? That being the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was not only situated that way physically, but he was positioned that way spiritually. He enjoyed the type of relationship with the Lord that when he put his head back like that, by the way, this word bosom that we have in verse 23, it occurs in another verse in John's Gospel. You know the verse. And it speaks of exactly what I'm talking about when it says in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, can you imagine the intimacy that is described in that expression that exists between the Father and the Son? And now we find a similar expression used to describe because he was not just there geographically and physically, he was there spiritually. And because he was, 
he was in a position to exercise the privilege of a person who walks close in asking something and receiving an answer. Beloved, I ask you this morning, is there not an application of what we have just seen to our prayer lives? Does Jesus not say, if any man abide in me and I in him, he shall ask what he will and it shall be done unto him? Oh, how our prayer lives would gain a momentum. Oh, how our prayer lives would be energized, strengthened, and become effectual if we were challenged to be closer to the Master. Well, we're going to turn the pages because we have to move on. John chapter 19, let's look at the second of them and make another observation. He was close enough to ask. He was also close enough to be trusted. Look at verse 25. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, there's that second of the five references, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. From the Last Supper, we come to the cross. Just remember, they've all forsaken him, the disciples, and fled. But the women are there. Isn't that interesting? We see the women. In their devotion, the women are there. Now, John is with them as well. John has made his way back. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Jesus is concerned, speaking again about the compassion and the love of our Savior, when in a moment from a human perspective no one would be thinking of anyone except himself and his own pain and his own agony, Jesus has thoughts for his mother and for provision for her. Do you ever think to yourself, why didn't Jesus make some provision for her with his half-brothers? He had them, you know. We have James who wrote the little epistle towards the end of the New Testament. We have Jude who wrote another little epistle towards the end of the New Testament. As best I understand the scripture, these men were Jesus' half-brother. Their father was Joseph. Jesus' father was not Joseph, but his mother was... And you see, beloved, we're not believing men at this point. They did not receive the testimony concerning their brother. They would, and they did, but they had not. And John is there, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's interesting, he's described here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. As I say, John never refers to himself by name. I think it has to do with a characteristic humility, but I think there's more than just the fact that this is the normal way he refers to himself. I think that the Spirit of God leads it to be written this way in order that we might have some insight, some understanding into why it was that Jesus chose John. If you were going to give the care of your mother to somebody, would you not pick the person closest to you? A person with whom you had such an intimate and close relationship that you would have no doubt that your mother would be cared for in the way that you would do it yourself if you had been able to continue. And so, it is this man, John, who is in a position to be trusted with a unique blessing, with a unique privilege, no one else got this opportunity. No one else got that gaze and had the Savior from the cross look down into his face and say, Behold thy mother. And he took her to his own home.
I have to ask myself, and I have to ask you again this morning a similar question. How many times have you and I passed up the chiefest and the best of God's blessings because God knew in our maturity and in our failure to walk close to Him, we were not worthy of them and we could not be trusted with them? Would God have blessed us more if we had a greater bearing of humility, if there were a consistent ability on our parts and dedication on our parts never to take the glory for anything that God has done but always give it to Him? Would God trust you with more financially if He knew you would do with it what He's prescribed in His Word ought to be done? You see, beloved, we hunger for these things, we long for these things, but I think it's appropriate every once in a while just to go to the mirror and look in and say, well, if I were the child, or if, if someone else were the child and I were the father, would I give it to him? Would I feel that he was mature enough to handle it and to do with it in a responsible manner? I like something I read about F.B. Meyer that he said one time. He said earlier in his Christian, Christian experience, he used to, in his mind's eye, picture that the blessings of God were arranged, as it were, on ascending shelves. So that as you grew taller and as you grew in character you could reach the chiefer blessings that were up on the higher shelves. He said later, as the years passed, his perspective changed, and he realized that in reality it was exactly the opposite, that God's chiefest blessings were arranged on descending shelves, so that it wasn't so necessary to grow taller as much as it was to stoop lower, ever going lower, to find God's richest blessings. And because we've not understood that, have we deprived ourselves of that position of trust that a man like John who walked close and received the blessing? Let's turn the page again, this time to chapter 20. We'll make the third observation, but we're going to look at occurrence number three and occurrence number four together because I think they enable us to make the same point. He was a man who was close enough to ask. He was a man who was close enough to be trusted. He was a man who was close enough to see. Our first example takes us to the tomb itself. Look at verse number one. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, here he is, whom Jesus loved. There's occurrence number three. And saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. I just love the, the way we're told these details in Scripture. This is just choice. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter. Do you suppose he enjoyed writing that? <laughs> and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, well, he was never one to be timid, and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin, that is, what they wrapped around the head, that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now, isn't that interesting? He saw and believed. He saw the very same things that 
Peter saw physically, but he saw more. He saw what the true import of them was. He saw that empty tomb. He saw that stone rolled away. He saw those grave clothes lying there and that part that had been wrapped, that separate part that had been wrapped around the head, lying, folded as it were, in a place by itself. And all at once, it burst upon his heart what that meant. You see, beloved, every other time Jesus had tried to tell them about the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, suffer and die and rise again, they had no understanding of what it was he was talking about. He shared with them the scriptures. He told them what was to come and it, they did not understand. Even those two that walked along the Emmaus Road that we read about in Luke chapter 24, their eyes were holden. They didn't understand how it was necessary that Christ should first suffer and die and then be raised from the dead. And so it is that this man sees the very same thing that Peter sees, but becomes the first of the twelve apostles to understand the true spiritual significance and to believe in his heart that his Savior was alive. Well, let's look at the second before we make the point. Turn to chapter 21. And from the empty tomb, we come to the shores of Galilee. And it's all going to end here as we see the fourth and the fifth occurrence but first the fourth. After these things, Jesus showed himself, first one, again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were gathered together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. You see, he never refers to himself by name. And two other of his disciples, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast thou therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore... That disciple whom Jesus loved saith to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, that would be us being stripped to the waist, as it were, and did cast himself into the sea. What a strange scene. Strange and yet also human. I, every time I read this, I think about being out on an old, yucky, cold deer stand all day long. And then as you walk out of the woods at the end of the day and you wonder, why was I such a fool and an idiot to be out here all day? And somebody walks up and says, any luck? And it's right then that you wonder if you couldn't find some way to give them a little bit of a, an attitude adjustment. Or perhaps you need one yourself. This strange figure appears along the seashore. It's early in the morning. It might even still be such that they couldn't quite make out who this person was. But he walks up with a boldness and with an authority as that boat begins to come back towards the shore. And he says to them, we might put it something like this, Do any good, boys? 
And they said, no. And he said, well, why don't you cast the net on the right side of the boat? Well, Peter and the others are so glad to hear something encouraging and characteristically, almost without understanding really what they're doing, they do this. But isn't this interesting that it was back years before, about three, maybe three and a half, that a similar occurrence had taken place. And there was a big crowd one day along the shore of Galilee and Jesus wanted to preach to them and he found a pulpit in a boat. You remember whose boat it was? Peter's boat. And as he backed that little boat off the shore and preached to that multitude, and after all that was done, he said to Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Peter's thinking to himself, Master, we have been fishing all night, but if you say so. And now the net enclosed such a multitude of fishes that it began to break. And yet, beloved, it isn't Peter who recognizes the person behind that voice. Isn't that incredible? The very person whom you would think would be the one to figure out, I've been down this road before. This figure whom I cannot quite discern and whom I do not quite see clearly, but who says with that familiar voice and that familiar authority, let down your net on the right side of the boat and ye shall find. But it's John who turns to him and says, it is the Lord. I tell you, beloved, when you are close to Jesus, there are things that you see. There are things that you see that you will see no other way except to be close to him. Oh, I wonder how often, beloved, you and I, how often do we miss the tokens of his blessing, thinking that just some random event befell us? How often do we miss the evidence of his providence, the subtle direction of his guidance, all because we just don't have that close of a relationship with the Lord. But I tell you, for one who walks close, there are things to see. There are things to see that other people totally miss. And finally, we're going to look at the fifth one now. I think you probably know so much more could be said about these. But now, Jesus takes Peter off to the side. Peter and the Lord have some things to settle, do they not? And you know the story. Simon... Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And this happens until finally his heart is broken. When in the final analysis, the question that he asks, because he changes words, is not do you love me with agape love, but do you even have that tenderness? Do you even have that affection for me? And Peter's heart is broken. And the thing is made right that's been between them because Peter denied his Lord. Well, now the Lord comforts Peter. You know, there's always comfort when you make something right with God. There's always forgiveness. There's always grace. The sacrifices of God are a broken of spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And when he makes it right, the Lord is only too happy to assuage his guilt and cleanse his heart. And he recommissions him, and he says to him in verse number 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, this is Peter yet, Thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Now look at this. Here's the fifth occurrence. 
Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. And I draw the last observation, wondering if I have chosen my word correctly, but he was also close enough to be envied. I don't know, beloved, maybe I should just simply change the word and say he was close enough to be noticed, but I think the truth lies somewhere between the two. After all, you know from a human standpoint, Peter had been trumped by this man on all these occasions. Oh, Peter was a great servant of the Lord, don't misunderstand me, and in his own right, he was a tremendous man of God. But it was John who was close enough to ask not just physically, but spiritually, and get an answer. And it was John who was close enough to be trusted with Jesus' mother. And it was John who saw and was the first to believe, and it was John who saw on that morning, though Peter had been the one who was the subject of a similar scene in the first part of his ministry, that it was the Lord. And it was John who was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and in that curiosity and that mix of interest and perhaps with just a little bit of an acknowledgement that here was a choice and special servant of God who undoubtedly had a special privilege of ministry ahead. He's just been told what's going to happen to him and he's just been told what privileges he'll have in service for Christ. And he says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Well, I'll tell you this, whether you use the word envy or whether you use the word close enough to be noticed, the great blessing of it is, as you know, if you're close and if you're near, people will know. They'll know. You don't have to advertise it. It's almost as if we have something here that played itself out again in another scene and Peter was part of that. You remember when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and those old hardened Pharisees and Sadducees that had them on the grill. But it says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You know, beloved, when you're near, his presence is transforming. So that people just catch a little bit of a glimpse they see Jesus in you. I read with great interest a story about a businessman. I don't know, maybe it had been some struggle, but finally one night he gave his heart to Christ and he was saved. The next morning he was in a rush to catch his train. He was running late. And as he rushed to that station and got close to it, and there were lots of people, he was trying to get there and catch that train, he ran smack in, un unintentionally, he ran smack into a little boy who had in his hands a puzzle. Well, that puzzle went everywhere. You know what he did? He stopped, he kneeled down, and helped the little boy pick up the pieces of the puzzle, all the while the train pulled out of the station that he was rushing to catch. The little boy looked up into his face, and this is what he said. He said, Mr., are you Jesus? 
And the man said, later on thinking about that, he said it was such a thrill to him because he said it proved to him that in some small way, Christ was really in his heart. He was close enough to be noticed. He was close enough to be envied. You know, in a proper sense, if you walk close to Jesus, you're the envy of people who know they should be but don't. It's a challenge, beloved. That's what this whole message is about this morning is a challenge. To get some glimpse of what this was, this man John, who had that unique... I read something that interested me again. I'll close with this. I'm reading a book now I want to share with some of the men who come out to soul winning. It's called The Soul Winner by C.H. Spurgeon. He tells an interesting story. He tells of an occasion that he went to hear George Mueller preach. And he reflects on it in a way that you might sort of expect for a man like Spurgeon. He comments that, you know, he said there was absolutely nothing in the discourse that would impress you as far as scholarship or learning or anything of that nature. And yet he commented, he said, I have not heard a sermon that has more blessed my soul. Why? Why, he says, as he examines this incident that took place in his own life, because it wasn't the eloquence, it wasn't the scholarship, it wasn't the learning, it was taking note of Jesus in that man that was the blessing and that was the real power behind that sermon. Beloved, May the Lord in some way use this message this morning to challenge us. We all have a long way to go. But would it not be a wonderful thing if we took the challenge of that unique descriptive feature of the life of this man out of here with us today and say, you know, he was a man who was known for a lot of things, but chiefest of them was he was close to Jesus. We're going to finish up down here one day. That day might be soon. It might be down the road a piece. We don't ever know. But when we do finish up down here and somebody has to stand up there in front of the church, give some sort of a eulogy or perhaps two or three give testimony or whatever, say something kind about what they knew of us, Will they remember us because they've taken note that we've been with Jesus? Or will they notice other accomplishments in our life that are meaningful to the world? And I don't discredit some of those, but I think if I had to pick, I'd just take this one right here. Father, bless us as we've paused this morning to think about something that calls out to every one of us who knows Christ as Savior. Father, I know full well that this is one of those messages this morning that ought to have a distinct appeal to each person here. Oh Lord, when we acknowledge that sometimes a specific topic is preached on and maybe that's not an area of our life that has a particular need at that point, and we hear what we hear and we treasure it up in our hearts, but there may not be that distinctive sense in which you get a hold of our hearts, but if the truth be known, this is something that each of us has reason to respond I don't think anybody here this morning from the pulpit in the front to the pew in the back walks as closely as he could. But there's sure a challenge here for us, Lord. There's sure a desire in the heart of a many of your child here this morning for just a closer walk with thee. And I pray, Father, that if there be anybody here this morning who knows that there is some 
breach of fellowship, some coldness of heart, some indifference that's caused us to be further away from you than we know at times we've been. Are we willing to confess that this morning, make that right, snuggle up close and ask for your forgiveness like Peter did. Bless us, Lord. If there's somebody here this morning who's not saved, Lord, I pray that you'd awaken that person to the need of trusting the loving Master. He who loved Judas enough to extend that last moment of grace extends a moment of grace at the conclusion of this service. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Let me ask, how many people here this morning you say, Preacher, I know I'm saved. And I know what you said. I mean it. This is one of those messages that really, if the invitation weren't given in a specific sense, we really all should come forward. But maybe there's somebody here this morning that says, Pastor, you know, this has touched my heart because I would have to confess as I've listened that I don't have the closeness to God that I've had before. Or I don't have the closeness to God that I know I should and God's been dealing with me about that. Maybe it just comes back down to the fact that you, you don't do your Bible reading on a daily basis. You don't have your prayer time. You miss services of the church you could be in. I don't know. But you say, Preacher, I'm burdened about this thing. I, God brought me here, I'm convinced this morning, to be challenged by the life of John. To have a cr closer walk. And I'd like to talk to the Lord about that, and I'd like to ask Him to draw me close. You know, the Bible promises, draw nigh to God, and He'll draw nigh to you. See, He's giving us an invitation there, and He's also making a promise. Who here this morning says, I preacher, I'm God's child, but the Lord's spoken to me. I need to draw close. I need to tell Him some things. I need to get back where I've been before. Pray for me that I'll have the courage and the grace to do that. Slip your hand up. Let me include you. God bless you. Someone else, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Someone else. Is there somebody here this morning says, Pastor, you've been talking about somebody that was intimate, somebody that was close, somebody that was near, and I don't feel any of that. And it might be that the reason you don't is because you've never, you've never been saved. You've never had that relationship with him established. The sin is the barrier. That's got to be taken care of. But you know you can be saved. You can be saved if you're willing to accept the free gift of eternal life and experience the transforming love of Christ. I ask you this morning to consider opening your heart to Him. Somebody here this morning says, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me because I should get this settled. It's a burden to me. I want to know I'm saved. I want to know I'm on my way to heaven. I want to know I belong to Jesus, but I'm not sure I do. I need to settle this. Pray for me. Anybody, slip your hand up. I'm not going to call your name. Let's stand to our feet for prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us these moments. Oh, Lord, I've done what I could. I know it wasn't enough, but I know you can add to it. I bring you five loaves and two small fish. But I pray thee, Lord, to multiply them in blessing. So as the Holy Spirit makes distribution of the broken bread here this morning, our souls be nourished our hearts encouraged, our love increased. And Father, for people this morning that said there's something they need to talk to you about, they need to take some steps back a little closer to you, something specific that they know about, I pray the Lord to give them sweet victory, help them to know what they need to do, give them the strength and wisdom and insight. Help us, Lord, to be people who are close enough to ask, people that are close enough to be trusted, people that are close enough to see, and in the right sense, people who are close enough for people to take note that we've been with Jesus. 
May others see Jesus in me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.